This is Songs of Praise. We hope this hour of musical reflection lifts your thoughts to our loving Saviour, Jesus Christ.
bow down And with my hands raised I will worship The one who's worthy of the crown Oh Lord, I know I can't repay The price you paid by which I'm saved But I stand amazed at what you've done Healer of my heart, here I am I have come with a whole heart I will love you with a pure heart I will bow down and with my hands raised I will worship the one who's worthy of the crown Melted all my fears What power Has set about not free and I know that I am weak But it's your grace That carries me With a whole heart I will love you With a pure
just an ordinary man A gentle healer He left our town today I just looked around Stay tuned to 3ABN Australia Radio for more inspirational music. In compassion and love He looked down to earth Then he sent 
and his son born of a virgin birth he knew from creation what was to be
beautiful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the
Psalm 61 verse 8. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may fulfill my vows daily.
supplies all things for me And I will trust Him Because I know Him
This is Songs of Praise, a message in music to draw you closer to God.
Though you belong to a king, you will hold no royal scepter.
Hope you've enjoyed the program. Join us again on Songs of Praise, produced by 3ABN Australia Radio.
Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Continuing Chapter 16, A Plane at Last. At this time I visited a former college friend in New Zealand. After exchanging greetings, we sat down to enjoy the evening meal together. Then my host startled me by asking, Well, Len, how much do you need to buy a mission plane? I guess $4,000 would mean the difference between a new and a used plane, I replied. There shouldn't be any problem about that, my friend rejoined. Between my dad, myself and a friend, I think you can count on it. I was stunned by this assurance and wired Dr. Reynolds to consider purchasing a new aircraft. By return mail, I received a letter telling me that a new plane, fully instrumented, would cost $16,408.75. With the extra donation, we would have on hand 16400 or all but $8.75. Glenn added on the bottom of his letter, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. While attending to the formalities for the importation and registration of the plane, I requested the Department of Civil Aviation in Australia for the registration letters VHSDA, Victor Hotel, Sierra Delta Alpha. Having been informed by an aircraft agency that such an application could not be granted by the department, I was agreeably surprised when it was granted without question. In Australia, all aircraft registrations consist of five letters, the first two always being the country's designation VH, Victor Hotel. This is followed by a hyphen and a combination of three letters, any combination may be used so long as it is not already registered. Thus, wherever VHSDA should fly, it would be recognised as the Seventh-day Adventist mission plane. Unfortunately, I had to return to the mission field before the aircraft arrived in Sydney by boat. Nevertheless, I went north with a light heart. Originally, my headquarters was to be established at Mulataka, 12 miles from Ligam, the nearest airstrip. Preliminary attempts had been made to lease the ground where Paul Piari had established his first mission station, an ideal central location, and only a few hundred yards from the airstrip. But negotiations had broken down and agreement seemed impossible. However, to our amazement, the attitude of the owners changed and the transaction was finalised. Living so close to the airstrip was a wonderful convenience when our mission plane arrived. The Ligam airstrip had earned a notorious reputation. The strip itself was built on soft white clay. High rainfall encouraged the growth of jelly-like algae on its surface, and regular crosswinds with severe turbulence complicated the approach. The Assistant Director Commissioner at Ligam, Mr Dennis Faithful also a pilot, decided to improve the airstrip. He surfaced a narrow section down the centre with crushed white stone, thus eliminating the surface problem. This was almost completed when our plane arrived. 
Now, a reasonable load could be lifted off the strip regardless of the amount of rain, making it economical for me to operate from Ligham. For more than a year, we expected the government to open the Lake Copiago area to missionaries. An airstrip had already been built. This place required an 11-day trek over difficult terrain, but only 35 minutes by air. It opened one month after the plane arrived, allowing me time to familiarise myself with tropical highland conditions and airstrips. Having been shipped in crates from the United States of America, our plane was assembled and painted in Sydney. I was invited to attend the dedication service for the aircraft and fly with it to New Guinea. The day dawned bright and fair on June 27, when the Andrew Stewart was dedicated and commissioned as the first Adventist mission plane in the South Seas. Appropriately, it was named after A.G. Stewart, who commenced mission service in 1903. White-haired but still as upright as a soldier, this 82-year-old stalwart offered the dedicatory prayer. Also participating in the ceremony were missionary veterans W.N. Locke and A.J. Campbell. Two days later, ferry pilot Brian Walker and I flew off toward New Guinea, two and a half thousand miles away. Late in the afternoon of the first day, we were well up the tropical coast of Australia when a severe storm near Cairns forced us to return to Townsville. Night was closing in, and the weather was chasing us as we flew on the radio compass and finally touched down on the lighted airport. The following morning we reached Cairns and continued up featureless Cape York. Tropical haze and drizzle reduced visibility as we left the tip of Australia and flew over Torres Strait. Peering through the murk, we saw Thursday Island looming ahead. We landed for fuel and customs formalities. Majestic storms were scattered along the dreary coast of the Papuan Gulf as we approached, and the mighty Fly River, 35 miles wide at its mouth, was emptying the water and soil it had brought down from the shrouded hinterland. We were now only six degrees from the equator. Below stretched miles upon miles of monotonous jungle, inhabited by crocodiles and mosquitoes. Because of the unfavourable weather and having ample fuel, we decided to make our next landing at Garoka in the New Guinea Highlands. Climbing to 9,000 feet, we managed to keep clear of clouds near the coast. But as the mountains guarding the highlands reached up to meet us, so did the clouds. Mammoth, cumulus cloud build-ups challenged our advance, so we climbed higher, but in our small plane we could never hope to top the hats of these giants of the heavens. Ten, eleven, twelve, then thirteen thousand feet registered on the altimeter. Could we find a gap in the clouds? Brian was sitting on the edge of his seat peering ahead when at fourteen thousand feet a pathway appeared. We flew into it, and could see Mount Erimbari west of Garoka. We both relaxed and enjoyed the downhill run into the valley, soon landing with a feeling of accomplishment. Pastor McCutcheon was there to meet us with a customary warm-hearted greeting. It was grand to be in New Guinea with our first mission aircraft. Chapter 17. Boraco a missionary pilot's life is made up of multitudinous duties. 
He may fly several hundred hours a year in his local field and other mission areas. He nurtures his churches, whether they be accessible by foot, Land Rover or plane. He holds regular workers' meetings to keep his band of nationals keen and happy in their service. Then there is the pastoral care and, of course, office work. As I sat in my office one morning, I heard a timid knock. Responding to my invitation, in walked Borico, who lived in a nearby Adventist village. Not knowing a word of pidgin English, he could only smile at me and talk in his own language. I smiled back and talked in pidgin. Then he fumbled in the pocket of his shorts and produced a small tin, which he opened ceremoniously. Out of it, Borico took $6.50, which he handed to me. It was always a delight to see Borico, for he had a happy disposition and a good sense of humour, although he was a shy soul. What name something? Tithe, I queried? Understanding the last word at least, he nodded with his usual smile. Every two or three weeks he came with his tithe, always insisting that he see me. Each time he was given a receipt, which he carefully folded and placed in his little tithe tin. I doubted whether such a large amount could be tithe, so I asked a schoolboy to come and question Borico in his own dialect. It seemed hardly possible that he earned an income ten times greater than the amount he had handed me. Still smiling, Borico insisted that it was indeed tithe, and that he wanted to give it to the mission. When I again expressed doubt that the money was tithe only, my visitor was a little hurt and explained that it was tithe from a sale of firewood. Obviously he wanted to give the money, but I could not help wondering whether he had not given nine-tenths and kept one-tenth for himself. Whatever proportion it was of his income, he clearly loved giving it to the Lord, and who was I to question him? But Borico had a problem. Each time we examined candidates for baptism, he would be right up in the front seat of the church hoping to be included in the group. But time after time he was passed by. The difficulty was that if he were baptised, he could keep only one of his four wives. Borico himself, after deciding to live with only one wife, found that another one refused to leave him. He wanted only one wife, but he had two. In such cases, arrangements are usually made with the clan of the departing wife for her to remarry or otherwise to be provided for. Eventually the problem was solved, and the greatest event in Borico's life took place. He was baptised in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His joy knew no bounds, and for days thereafter he could be seen visiting his friends and telling them of his gladness. His faithfulness in tithe paying continued, and his perpetual smile was broader than ever. One day, Borico went down to the nearby stream to do his washing. The spot where he waded in with his precious clothing and a small piece of soap was narrow, steep and slippery. He soaped, rubbed and rinsed his garments, humming one of the many gospel choruses he had learned. When he had finished, he tossed his clothes up the bank onto a clump of grass. Then, still humming, he thoroughly lathered himself. All this time, Borico had been completely oblivious to the fact that he was slowly edging toward deep water.
Suddenly he slipped down the steep slope of the shelf where he had been standing and fell beneath the surface. A man of the mountains, he had never learned to swim. Completely submerged, he started to stumble along the bottom of the stream. Then realising his situation was critical, Borico quickly prayed, Lord, I am paying my tithe faithfully. I am living with only one wife, and now I am baptised. You know how much I love you. Now I want you to save me. No sooner had his thoughts ascended to his heavenly father than he felt something scrape his head. He reached up and grasped it. It was a branch from an overhanging tree which he used to pull himself to safety. Now, doubly full of the joy of the Lord, Borike decided to make a visit to relatives in a distant part of the jungle to pass on the good news. Hour after hour he trudged through the fetid forest, ignoring the slush, stinging nettles and leeches. Late in the afternoon he arrived at his destination, wet and muddy, grateful to be able to sit on the dirt floor of his relative's hut to dry before the cheery fire. He satisfied his hunger with cow-cow cooked in the hot coals and slept peacefully. For the next few days, Borico spoke of God's love, telling his relatives of his own conversion and his being spared from drowning. Many responded. On his return home, Borico, with glowing eyes, came to see me. Joyfully he told of his witnessing, requesting a picture roll, a gramophone, and a few nails to help build a church. Now, in the village of Borico's relatives, stands a little chapel where many villagers are preparing for baptism, and where each day melodies of praise ascend to God, a witness to the zeal and love of one humble disciple. As far as practical, I tried to spend each Sabbath at a different mission station, sharing the triumphs and trials of the believers, walking slippery trails with them, and eating in their humble huts. All this binds us together. In worship, they never fail to respond to a talk on the Advent hope. The prospect of living with their beloved Saviour in heaven is their highest delight. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Another psalm of Asaph is Psalm 82, and it is a plea for justice. God presides over the great congregation of his people. He judges even the judges. It appears you are judging unjustly and showing favour to the wicked. Instead, Be the defender of the defenceless. Bring justice to the poor and the needy. Give freedom to those who cannot help themselves against those who would do them harm. They do not have the knowledge, nor do they understand. They go here and there in the darkness as the very foundations of the earth are moved. I said, you are under judges. All of you are the sons of the Most High. 
but you shall die as other men die, falling even as those who rule shall fall. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations are yours.'" 